knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Erin Block works as a librarian and freelance writer. She's the author of two books, The View from Cool Creek and By a Thread. Her fiction has been published in The Rumpus and The Columbia Review, and sporting essays and articles have been published in Gray Sporting Journal, American Angler, Fly Fisherman, and Field and Stream. She is an editor-at-large for Trout Unlimited's magazine Trout, and her essay, Lines of a Poem, was a first-place winner in the Outdoor Writers Association of America 2017 Excellence in Craft Awards. She lives in a cabin in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, where she hunts, forages, and gardens with her partner, Jay Zimmerman. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with Erin to discuss more about how she got into fly fishing and why she opted to step away from it. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Olakai. Aloha was born in Hawaii, but the Aloha spirit holds no geographic boundaries. With Aloha as their foundation, Olakai takes a different approach to footwear. Olakai crafts only the highest quality shoes and sandals with premium materials and artistic story details with the style, durability, and versatility for today's watermen and waterwomen who lead an active, ocean-bound lifestyle. Whether you're loading up the boat with supplies at the dock, fishing off the rocks, or scoping out the best place to cast from the beach, Olakai's water-ready footwear is designed to keep you sure-footed with comfortable island style through every step of your journey. Shop or find your local retailer at olakai.com forward slash anchored. I was born in Omaha, Nebraska, in the city, and... My mom loved horses, so when I was 10-ish, you know, my sister and I had talked my parents into getting us riding lessons, and we were going to stables, and then we convinced my dad to that we could have a horse or a pony, and then after my dad looked into boarding costs, he was like, I think this makes more sense to just buy an acreage, to just move, so oh. we moved, um, and we moved to the farm, which was just like the best childhood ever. We were not supposed to have anything but a horse for the first year. (laughs) Yeah, you know where that's going. We had a pot-bellied pig, we had chickens, we had a mule, we had donkeys, ducks. 
So I grew up on a farm in Southwest Iowa. Okay, so you guys switched states. Yeah, we switched states. It's very close. Just Omaha's almost on the border, and then we moved to the southwest corner of Iowa. So my dad still commuted to his job. So I grew up on a little acreage. We were called hobby farmers. Of course, and they yeah. still use that term, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that makes me feel so happy just selfishly because with us moving out from Manly, mm-hmm. Charles and I, Charles wants to get Adelaide into horses. My mom was actually a professional rider and still rides quite seriously. And Adelaide is obsessed with horses. It's like skipped, it skipped me skipped and went generation. straight to her. Yeah. And I've been warning him, we're not boarding, blah, blah, blah. So his, obviously he's had the same thoughts as your dad. And he said, fine, well, we'll just buy a place. And, and I, I went out of there so bad. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, that sounds good. Let's do that. We'll go get some horses. And it's already started being like, okay, and now we're going to get these bees and we're going to get some chooks or chickens. Yep. Right. And yep. That's how it starts. That's how it starts. And you're, you're, you're on the slope. <laughs> right. Except for the pig. What did you guys do with the pig? Uh, she just was kind of there. Yeah. yeah. I think we got her from, uh, she was kind of a hand-me-down of someone who didn't want her anymore. And we were just like, oh yeah, sure. We'll, we'll take her, give her a home. But yeah, she was not really a, a working part of the farm. Right. <laughs> what about responsibility? And again, this is me being so selfish right now, but we want our daughter to learn responsibility. And cause Charles went to school out there mm-hmm. and he grew up out there. And he said that he loved that the farm girls or his school friends would have to wake up early and they'd go ride their horses and they'd go get eggs and stuff. And it taught them responsibility. Mm-hmm. Did that happen for you? Yes, I think Charles is right. Um, Yeah, no, we definitely, my sister Erica and I were, if we had an animal, it was our responsibility. And so then even when we we had a herd of, a small herd of dairy goats and we'd breed them, you know, in the fall and they'd kid in the spring. And it was even our responsibility to set up, you know, set our alarms and get up every two hours and go check on them when they're, you know, getting close to, to giving birth. So yeah, we had a lot of responsibility and all the cleaning out of the stalls and yes. all that. So yeah, for sure. You're getting me giddy. <laughs> I grew up at a barn, obviously, because my mom, you know how I am with my daughter fishing. Because my mom was so renowned in her field, mm-hmm. I was the same. So she like rode with me when she was pregnant. I was the baby that she was mom shamed for having me on the horse with her. Mm-hmm. And I shoveled shit in barns for my whole upbringing. That's um, why it skipped a generation. Yeah, yeah. That's ex- well, that's exactly what <laughs> happened. you didn't have this like abstract, horses are awesome. You you right away knew what they were. They were proper yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. They're a lot of yeah. work. That's really interesting. Okay, so Aaron, what were you like as a kid? I'm Just so oh, you know, for I people like? know that, because so, people don't know this, I am so unbelievably fascinated by you. You're like my woman crush of, of all time. <laughs> no, seriously. And you'll go purple because that's a personality, <laughs> which makes you even more intriguing to me. Um, but what? I, I am so absolutely fascinated by you. So I sometimes will like glaze over this upbringing thing or like skip through it, but nope, nope, not you. You, I'm going to just, I've got so many questions for you. Okay. Well, I was definitely a tomboy. Okay. I had a brief ballerina phase. Oh, really? When I was five, six, um, where I just wore my tutu apparently all the time through the winter in Nebraska. But then I got out of that. And then I was just a tomboy. I wanted to do what the boys were doing because they seemed to have more fun. So I was never, I mean, I was kind of a nerd. I was very bookish. I read all the time. My mom had a rule that if we were reading a book, she couldn't ask us to do chores. No way. So it was a great rule because it made us really love reading, but it probably also backfired in that. I mean, we, we always had to do chores, but but yeah, it was like very reinforced that reading was a good thing because 
I read all the time. Um, once we moved out to the farm, it was like all animals. I raised and showed cattle. But yeah, I was just always kind of, I was kind of a loner. My sister and I were, got along fairly well, well when we were kids. We get along better now as adults. But we would just take off on our horses and pack a lunch and like be gone all day. Just riding, we'd get permission from farmers to ride along their cornfields. And Is yeah. she a similar personality to you? Uh, similar, but she is different. We're similar in our view on like worldview, I would say. Um, she surfs and swims like long distance open water swims Whoa. and was really big into climbing for a while. So yeah, we our interests have diverged, but she's taller than me. Okay. Got it. Yeah, I get it. I do. I get it. Did your parents stay together? Yes, they are together. And my dad has worked in the funeral industry, um, funeral homes. So we always had like urns that had Wait, broken so you, or cracked. You grew up around that? Yeah. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is that movie, My Girl. My Girl. With um, Macaulay Culkin way back oh, in the yes. day. Oh, yes. I haven't seen that in forever. I remember one of the parents has the funeral home going on. And it was very morbid. Man, I don't remember that. Were you around any of that? Well, actually, Erica had a friend who definitely thought it was too morbid that we had like, as my dad would bring home urns that had cracked or if a headstone had been misspelled or something like that, where you just have this really expensive granite that isn't going to be used he would get to bring home. So he built like really cool pathways. Oh, wait, of tombstones? Yeah, but the name was like, oh, was okay. turned down. Sure. Um, oh, that's actually really, that's really cool though. Yeah, it's really cool and not creepy, but you know, my mom would have flowers and like an urn. Yeah. Because it's a really pretty vase. Yeah. Um, but definitely some people thought it was spooky. I think we were just around it so much it wasn't spooky. And then on a farm... You, we were just always dealing with death. Kids, goat kids would be born and, you know, sometimes they'd be stillborn. Or We were also known in our county for being kind of softies. Um, so each spring, if a calf would lose its mother, we would get a call. And we'd be like, do you, you know, do you guys want a bottle calf? And we'd always go pick them up. And it was probably 50-50 ratio of living and dying. But, yeah. you know, I remember one time I was like, really loved it. She was pure white. She was beautiful. And she was probably only, I don't know, less than a day old when we picked her up. And I slept out in the barn with her in the sleeping bag with me oh. underneath a heat lamp. And, you know, I kept waking up in the middle of the night to like check on her and stuff. But then in the morning she was dead. Oh no. But then of course I had to go help my dad dig the hole to bury her. Yeah. So it was like, it was very present. So death wasn't, didn't seem like an abnormal thing or a scary thing or that some, even something that just didn't make sense. Has so, that carried through to today? Do you still feel yeah, death like that? I do. Yeah. And I don't, I don't believe in the afterlife, yeah. which I was brought up believing in. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, I feel you like you mentioned church earlier. Yeah, yeah. I was brought up very, in a very religious household, but to me, it's, there's something that's actually a lot less stressful about just believing this is it, that this is all there's going to be, and you accept that and you make it as good as you can. So I don't know. Fair it, enough. It, it's a, it's a lot easier for me to deal with. But yeah, I definitely think that I look look at death still the same. And even in as I've gotten into hunting more, I kind of like remember just those experiences as a kid dealing with death. It's death in a different way. We were still we would buy 
couple hundred broiler chickens each spring, you know, and raise them and then butcher them all in one day. So we did some of our own butchering, but then like the steers, the cattle that I would raise to show in 4-H, they'd always have this big auction and businesses would like, you'd get way more money than your steer was worth, right? But right. And you always had to load them up at the end of the fair into the big trucks that would take them to the slaughterhouse. And a lot of kids would have someone else do it. And I always made myself do it. And I remember standing there and you'd just be like holding the halter and I would just be crying, just crying. But I'm like, no, like this is what you have to deal with this. If you're going to do this, you have to be the one to face reality. Right. So you right. forced yourself to do that. I did force myself to do that. <laughs> I feel I feel like you still force yourself to do that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so that stayed true with you throughout your into adulthood then. Yes. It could be a form of self-hatred. <laughs> <laughs> do tell, do tell. I'd be fascinated to hear this. No, I definitely feel like some of it, well, okay. That was kind of a joke, but kind of not. Um, but I do feel that I got to the point where I, I don't live in a place where I can raise my meat like I grew up doing. Um, but I did get to a place where I thought, okay, if I'm going to eat meat, I have to kill it myself. I have to go that route. There's this great essay. It's the best hunting essay. It's called Heart of the Game, and it's a Thomas McGuane essay. And okay. it was originally published in Outside Magazine, I want to say in like the 70s or something. Oh, wow. Okay. And he has this great phrase, and it's exactly how I feel. If you think about it, you end up on one declination or the other, right? You're, you're either going to hunt or you're going to be a vegetarian. And that was the point that I had had gotten to. Um, he also talks about how like when your quarry goes down, you feel instant remorse. And that's the closest, like it's just so hard to describe that. But I do feel like it's a way, not a way of punishing myself for eating meat, but like facing it, facing it of that you have to do this if you want to do this. Yeah, no, it's just, I think and it's just being responsible. I also feel like uh, when I started mushroom hunting, pretty seriously, um, and foraging different things, it, it gives you a sense of earning what you're eating, Yeah, which is missing. Is for, today. It is missing. It's, yeah. it's a very abstract thing. And it's just so, you just feel so much satisfaction when you do earn it. We are on the same page. But I'm going to bring you back to your childhood then. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you go to high school and yes. you're a tomboy mm-hmm. at school and you weren't an outcast. I mean, did you well, go- we were outcast because we were homeschooled. Oh, interesting. Yes. Were your parents pretty similar or were were you closer to one than the other? I think we probably ended up closer to my mom just because she we spent all our days together. Was she pretty intellectual? I would say my dad is actually more intellectual than my mom. Okay. But my mom is definitely the animal. Like when we were growing up, she baked all her bread. She ground her own wheat. I think that's... That's where I got kind of that kind of mentality mm-hmm. as a little seed. What was it like being homeschooled? I mean, that's a loaded question, I know. I, I mean, went like- to kindergarten. Okay. And that was in Omaha. So, and it was a very large school, which just had a lot of problems, which was the impetus for my mom pulling me out and homeschooling. Uh, okay. What kind of problems? It was just gigantic. And... If you like finished things, you were essentially punished. Like I remember having to sit on, like sit with my hand on my head uh, for things. Oh, so it's just like, and I remember, I I don't remember this, but I guess I was having a lot of anxiety because of that. And so I was like starting to chew my nails and do just other things where mom was like, this is just like not mentally good for Aaron right now. And she had some friends or some friends 
who lived kind of on our, in our neighborhood who homeschooled. So my mom had a friend who was doing it. And so, you know, had a, we all became very good friends for a lot of years, but that it was the origination of it. And as with anything, there are parts I really liked and there are parts I didn't like. Although going through it at the time, I don't think there were parts I didn't like. Now looking back, I think there were parts that weren't great. Was your sister also? She was. And did this go out for elementary school and? Yes. Or on for elementary school and high school? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what do you look back at now and not like? Um, not like is everyone who homeschools is different, but we didn't, my mom didn't focus on testing. So I think both of my sister and I felt that once we got to college, it was very difficult for us to study. Sure. Because our schooling was very kind of just free form. If we were inter- interested in something, we just got to go whole hog into it, which is great. And which I think both Eric and I, it's kind of how we are as adults, even. We're always curious about things, we're always learning things. She is learning all sorts of languages right now. So it had very good effects. But yeah, there, there are things looking back where when you're in a structured environment, that it just, it doesn't translate. So I almost wish we would have had, like, gone, gone to high school or a couple of years where we would have gotten used to that structure or where I would have gotten used to that structure. Especially before college. Yeah. And I did take a couple community college classes my senior year of high school, which kind of eased the the thing. How does that work with the, so- I mean, obviously the big thing is how does that work with socialization? Right. I always got asked, oh, but you missed prom. Oh, I was really? always oh, like, so American. Okay, I was like, sorry. okay, no one would have asked me to prom anyway. But oh, so that, getting back to your question about like kind of how I was as a kid, I actually feel like it, I don't want to say protected me, but I got to be the weird person I was. Sure. Like quirky, you mean? Right. Like, I, you mean just individual? You're, just you're an individual. Unique person. Uh, yeah, yeah. That I probably would have tried to change because I know I would have been bullied. I know I wouldn't, you know, like I wouldn't have had a niche. I wouldn't have had a click. Sure. So, or maybe I would, but I, I definitely feel like high school wouldn't have been a great experience for me. Sure. So I'm glad I didn't have to do it, but. Wait, so you had other girlfriends from the homeschool. What about mm-hmm. boys? So you didn't date? No, I did not date until I was in college. Okay. Which oh is also gosh. a drawback. That, yeah, because that, I can see how that could go wrong on many levels. Yes. Yeah, it did wow. go wrong. No, yeah. <laughs> but no, but no, because you just had no experience in what it was like For or sure. what it was supposed to be or what, what you wanted. So yeah, that, that was a drawback. But at the time I didn't have interest in boys other than like, can't we just be friends? You know, can't we just do fun things? But yeah, I had, I, we did definitely get socialization and friends through 4-H. We did a lot of 4-H stuff. Oh, that, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. And like-minded people as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what did you want to take in college? All growing up, I wanted to be a veterinarian, but I am really not good with the sciences and the maths. So it <laughs> became, I was like, oh, a veterinarian. And then I really wanted to do some sort of science. And it just, I regret now. I don't actually, I do, don't have regrets, but that is one of them. It's, it's never too late, you know. It is never too late. And, and, I like my job now and I like the, the career path I, I fell into, but if I could do it again, I'd force myself to buck up and get bad grades in science and math, but persevere. Yep. So what did you take then? That's what you So I to. decided, so part of our homeschooling 
curriculum was both Eric and I had to take some sort of musical instrument um, lessons, I think through high school. So both of us, I played the classical guitar, Erica played the flute. And so we were very active in music stuff too. So I decided I was going to major in music which is a bad financial decision. I know, I did it myself. <laughs> I made that mistake. <laughs> so I went, to, and I also wanted to go out of state. I wanted to, I loved my family. I loved the farm, but I really wanted to like just experience something totally different. So I applied for a lot of conservatories in big cities. And I went okay. to the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. That actually seems like that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, I think it was. It, it really... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure why I had that thought process, but I, I didn't want to like stay close to home for college. I wanted to go, go somewhere different. Did it seem artsy to you? I think it seemed more artsy and somehow like more legit. So yeah, I ended up in San Francisco for four years, which was very educational and eye-opening. Alone? So just one day you pick up and you go to school and you're alone? Yeah, my parents dropped me off in San Francisco when I was 17 because I'm like the younger the age. Movies I've, seen. <laughs> I've only ever seen this stuff in movies. And actually the conservatory at the time didn't have, it was, it was one building, which was an old orphanage, which was supposedly haunted. There were lots of stories. As it would be. Uh-huh. And, uh, but they didn't have any sort of dorm set up. So they would provide lists of, you know, incoming freshmen and you kind of had to arrange your own living situation, which ended up being really fun. So our, this was in the early days of email. I remember this was like really cutting edge that we could email people. So I ended up rooming with Valerie, who's from Seattle. It was really cool. Um, we did, had to do our, our own grocery shopping and cooking. And it was like, all of a sudden you're an adult, which was kind of shocking. Yeah. So did they, was it like in the movies where they drop you off and there's tears and they drive away being like, Whoa, how are we ever going to live? I don't think so. Okay. But they weren't afraid for you? No. Which, or maybe, maybe they were a little bit. Were you afraid for you? No, I was just so excited. I remember just thinking it was, I remember having this kind of like movie, like, oh, it's just going to be like the movies, right? Or some, I don't know what I thought, but it was really fun. And you didn't rebel at all? No, that came later in life. But it did come, right? It did come. Okay. Not, not in a, uh, it came in a theological, intellectual rebellion. Well, that's probably a best case scenario <laughs> <laughs> compared to a lot of my friends. Wow. Yeah. All right. So did, so you finished, now did it happen when you were in college? No. All right. So let's just finish college days then. You finished school? Finished school. Got your degree in? Classical guitar performance. Okay. And do you use it? Zero. Yep. And <laughs> but I have, I have gone back to it. And actually, I mean, you have your master's, I right? Also some of uh, earlier in, actually, when we were still living in Omaha, we played in this little bluegrass band. Oh, so cool. I also have a banjo that every once in a while I'll take out. But yeah, you know what? why I don't take out my guitar is when I was in conservatory, I was practicing five hours a day. Mm, it's work. It's work. And I was very good. And so you remember how good you were. And now when I take it out, it's like, I t just suck. Oh, that's You hard. know, because yeah. you work it. So it's like, mm, I'd have to work so hard to get to the point where I would enjoy it. Because you remember being able to do things that now you're not able to do. Yeah. So even if you sound really great to all of us in, right. in your head. It's awful. You know that you're not what you could be. Right. That is harsh. Yeah. Now you did go back to school to get your master's. 
Yes. But there was some, I'm assuming there was some time in between. There was. So we will get there. Okay. So you graduate <laughs> school, you got this in- yeah. incredibly um, useful degree. Yes. And <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I actually really enjoyed teaching and I had multiple jobs teaching guitar lessons and I really enjoyed that. And it turns out I really did not enjoy the performance aspect of it, which you kind of had to do to get the students to keep the students all, it's a bag that goes together. Yeah, You can't separate those. So I was kind of, I was very burnt out at the end of those four years and was still playing and everything. And I ended up getting a job at REI. I also got married very young. So how did you guys meet? We met through my mom and dad's church. Uh, okay, it's all. Oh, oh are you are you seeing the path here? lead to the rebellion? Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> I got it. It's it's. Yep, continue. I'm listening. <laughs> so yeah, so it was the summer after I graduated college, got married, and then we lived in San Francisco for another year, and it's just crazy expensive if you don't have four roommates. So we were kind of just looking for a place and he wanted to go back to Nebraska and I didn't. And so decided Denver was close and there was an REI here that would transfer at least one of our jobs. So it was kind of nice that we could go to a new place, but have some source of income. So that's how I ended up in Colorado. And then one of my summer jobs was in a library. Uh, My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, but then once my sister graduated, she started doing some volunteer work and then eventually led to part-time work. And now she's a full-time children's librarian. So she got me a job at her library for a summer. And I really liked it. What did you like about it? Are you allowed to sit there and read all day? No. No, I didn't think so. No. And my job now is very different than what I was doing when I decided I liked libraries. And I still like that. <laughs> okay. sounded bad. That sounded worse than it is. But I liked that it was always different. And I liked that it was kind of just almost seemed random. The questions people would ask were very interesting. So you're always learning things. And I also like solving problems. I like it when people need help finding something. And you definitely feel like there's a public good, especially in a public library, which that yeah. was. Now I work in an academic library and there's still public good. But uh, you really felt it in a in a public library that this was you were really providing service that a lot of times people needed. Right. Um, and I definitely have gone through periods of my life where I didn't have a computer or internet, and I was going to the library to submit job applications and to look for jobs. So I just ended up feeling very strongly about providing that service. Sure. So so how long did you work there for? So that was just a summer, but then when I was in Denver, I was getting real tired of. Um, you're safe here of working in (laughs) working in retail sure so I was like I remember really liking the library so I tried for probably a good year just to get a shelving position at Denver Public Library and I finally got a part-time shelving position and then they had this program where um, it, it took a little bit but they had a program where they would actually pay for your for furthering your education if you were going to study library science and I was like, I'll do that. So that got me on the path to getting my master's. Okay. What got you on the path of divorce? So uh, how do we, how do we say this? Aaron, not one Aaron thing. Aaron got woke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, I definitely grew up with a different view of what marriage would be like than what it was. Sure. And with a very religious view of what marriage would be like. And we were just too young. Yeah. And it's kind of a nice part about my marriage and divorce 
is that it wasn't awful. Right. And there are no lingering hard feelings. And actually, he out of the blue called me this summer, and we had a really great talk. But yeah, it just wasn't working out. Um, at the same, about the same time, I started going to my master, working on my master's. I also got diagnosed with celiac disease. What is that? So that is, is it's that genetic. Gluten? Is that- it is gluten, yeah. yeah. So my mom had been diagnosed with it and had struggled with things for her whole life. Was always anemic and, you know, they couldn't figure out like what was happening. And I'd always had stomach problems. So that was kind of a clincher because he wasn't super supportive in this whole new thing that got me it. kind of angry and <laughs> wild. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of kick-started it. When you're 21, you just don't really know who you are or what you, what you want to do with your life. And I had started thinking, you know, I wanted to have this career and I didn't want to have this family that, that um, oh, you know, we had both probably thought we would have. Yeah, was the kid talk ever coming up? The kid talk came up a lot. He oh. he really wanted kids. Because you still don't want kids. I still don't want kids. You'll never, I, I would imagine you probably never want kids. No. So that would be, and did you know back then that you didn't want kids? I was figuring it out. And yeah. you know, if you think if you think back about it, I never saw myself as a mother or wanted to be a mother. If someone had a baby, all of my friends would like, oh, run over and want to touch the baby. I never have wanted to touch a baby or hold a baby. It's like, no, keep the baby away. <laughs> Um, I will drop it. <laughs> yes. I don't trust. I am fairly I was like clumsy. That. So I Up just, until I was 30, I was like that. Yeah. I mean, I have to order wine glasses on Amazon like once every couple of months because I break so many. So I shouldn't be trusted with a yeah. child. I noticed that our glasses don't have stems. And you notice they're not all, they're not the same. I do. They're all different. Yes. <laughs> Jay is the only one responsible enough to have a stem. Yeah. No, for a, a period of time, a couple of years ago, I had to drink my wine every night out of a tin cup. Oh, I thought you were going to say like a sippy cup. <laughs> well, I've we've talked about it. <laughs> it has been brought up. If you had white couches, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also notice we don't have like fab- many fabrics in this house. <laughs> so yeah, I think I grew up thinking I would have kids because that's what people did. But it wasn't when I actually started thinking about it. I was like, I just don't feel like I want this. But it makes you look at your marriage differently too, right? It does. How did the celiac situation go down? Like, do so you yeah, still my have mom, that? Yes. Yeah, so it is an autoimmune disease and it's hereditary. And my mom has it. And that's why I was tested is because when she was finally diagnosed, they said, you know, if you, if you have kids, they should have this, the blood work done. Um, so I did and I had, I had it and they also do a biopsy of your small intestine. Okay. So celiac disease is an autoimmune disease that there's a reaction with gluten and villi. I never know how you, exactly you pronounce it, but it's the fingers on your, like the little tiny fingers on your small intestine that basically digests your food and absorb the nutrients. With the autoimmune disease, it eats down those fingers and you just aren't absorbing nutrients. And like my whole life, I've had like terrible like stomach pains and like just, it was always just this random thing. But when I stopped eating gluten went away and sometimes my stomach's still messed up, but yeah. So it doesn't go away. Sure. The symptoms will go away, but the disease is always there. Okay. So you divorce, Mm -hmm. you still have your celiac disease, but you're Mm -hmm. a badass woman and you've got this covered. That's right. Were you spending any time outdoors at this point? Yes. It's actually when I started really going into the mountains here in Colorado was just going on hikes all by myself. 
um, would be like my one day off a week. That's what I would go do. So yeah, I definitely was spending a lot of time. Just hiking. to hike though. Just to hike. To get away? Was it for exercise? I think it was more, it wasn't for exercise. It was more just to get away and be able to think about things. You know, we were like in this tiny little studio apartment. You just didn't really have space. Space. Mm-hmm. Did you start looking at the rivers or the, or the water at all and think, you know, this is kind of a shame. It's here. I wonder what's in mm-hmm. there. Well, actually it was, because I would always have my destination be a lake with these beautiful high high altitude lakes here. So I'd always make my destination of the hike be a lake and then walk back down. But probably half the time once I got to a lake, a fly fisherman would show up. And I was always like, wow, that looks just really cool and beautiful. And I wanted to do that someday. So that that's kind of what got me interested in fly fishing. And as a kid, we had a canoe and we we did fish. There's always worms. We always had put the worms on ourselves, and we never really caught anything much. Right. <laughs> but, um, so that's kind of how I thought about fishing. So this new form of fishing was very intriguing. So that, that's what got me thinking down that, that path. So what was the first step to getting involved in fly fishing? First step? Well, being a good librarian. Okay. Oh, so did you start reading books about it? Yeah. Well, I started just like Googling things and I'd actually read the classic River Runs Through It like way before I, just because I guess I'm a reader. But yeah, so I started reading a lot of books. I did Googling and I thought, you know, I'm just going to start following this because this was newly divorced. I had just recently bought this house. And I was like, I, I can't spend a whole lot of money, right? I don't have the money to throw down on some whole new endeavor. Wait, so, so you were in this house? Yeah. We're sitting in your house right now. It is. It's, did you see my eyes when I walked in? I could feel them bulge out. And I was like, oh, April, that's so embarrassing. You're giving yourself away. <laughs> when you had, when I'd messaged you to say, hey, do you want to do a podcast? You said, do you want me? I think you even offered to meet me in the city. Yeah. And <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. Your place would be great. Because I, <laughs> I knew what to expect, but I didn't know it was this cool to walk in here and look up and see sheds and an old fireplace and just mason jar after mason jar of dehydrated mushrooms. And then there are plants hanging from your ceiling dehydrating. So this is that house that you bought this right after your divorce. Do you identify with this house a lot into who you are today? Yes. Yes. Actually, very much so. It would be hard. I like thinking about moving to Alaska and doing making some big move, but it would be very difficult to leave this house. I get stuck to places. I don't mm-hmm. like to leave places, mm-hmm. but I, I very rarely get fixated or stuck or emotionally bound to things, including homes. Right. I just always like to be able to know that I can pick up and go. Mm-hmm. I can see in looking here, even my cabin, I, I think I could leave. Mm-hmm. I think I could. It would hurt, but I could. Looking around here, it's a different vibe. It's different. I can see this is it's almost like a a, per, a a person in itself. Yeah, and I definitely feel very attached because I I bought it and moved in alone, and the first fall it, and it was very dilapidated, and my oh. income bracket was this is it was built in 1950. Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, was one where I actually looked at some houses where the realtor wouldn't go in because be- of haunting. No, because. Like, oh, spe- like mold because the walls were like would move when he opened the door. Oh. Like it might fall down. <laughs> yeah. So this house, I didn't immediately feel. Although 
when you walk in, there's the fireplace. Yeah. And that is what I immediately fell in love with. I, I like the stone fireplace. Yes. But my dad, it was probably the best piece of life advice he gave me was he really, he said, you know, you're not, it's never a waste of money because you're putting into a mortgage, not rent. Right. And if you can swing it, even if you're worried about it, do it. And he also told me that you'll have a lot of pride in your house, you know, of doing things for your house. And my dad can fix anything and is a very good carpenter, all of these things. So he helped me put the gutters on, came out and helped me. But the first, within the first month I was here, I took a couple of days off and painted the whole outside of the house Ooh. by myself and did all the locks. And I did a lot of like very, you know, the, the first things you would do when you moved in the house all by myself. And I remember definitely feeling very, because, you know, if you're just post relationship, whether it's marriage or whatever, I was just feeling very independent. Yeah. So I think there is a lot of that in this house. I see um, it. Yeah. Okay. So you move into this beautiful new house. You're a powerful, enlightened woman. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and you decided that you can't afford fly fishing. Mm-hmm. So what was the next step? To get to fly fishing, was I just learned about it for a while. Um, and then I started following this blog called Colorado Fly Fishing Reports. And it was Jay's blog. Ah, can you just for the, my listener let people know who Jay is? Jay is my and his last name. partner in crime, Jay Zimmerman, husband, partner, spouse. And Jay was already in the He, he was in the fly fishing industry. In the industry. Yeah, yeah, okay. in the industry. <laughs> yeah. So then I got to know Wait, so you got to know his writing first before you met him? That's right. So how, what do you say to someone without looking like a groupie? Like, hi, I like the way you use an Oxford comma. Oh, no, know? I didn't say anything. Okay. I was totally shy, just lurking, looking. <laughs> like, and genuinely. Did you have cats? No. Okay, because I'm just picturing you, but the librarian, he had a cat. house with a cat. He like. lived in a basement apartment with a cat. Okay. Which, like, you think, like, that's just not stereotypically Right, but I don't think Jay is stereotypical anything. No, that's correct. No, that and I right. don't think that about you either. That's yeah. why it's so perfect. <laughs> it's why we work. Yes, with probably only each other. <laughs> so, what did your creepy ass do? <laughs> well, I just like I was just reading. He had a lot of videos, and I was just oh, cool. And then I must have commented on something, and I don't remember when it was, but he noticed that like I wasn't an old man, and. <laughs> clicked on my little icon and was like, oh, she's writing a blog too. And he started following my blog. Well, you had a blog? Yes. What was it? It was it was called Mysteries Internal, which is what it was once I started writing about fly fishing. But it was about food. Okay. And that came about because one of the effects of celiac disease and a divorce was I gave myself a pretty big time eating disorder. What kind? Um, anorexia. Yeah. I just, it's stuff. a... Po- it was a power thing. I didn't care, didn't care about weight or anything, but it was like, that was the food. It was the one thing that I could control. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also kind of like a mental mind thing of having eaten something for all your life that then you figured out you were poisoning yourself with. Yeah, It was a really just jarring. It was like, I almost didn't trust food for a while. So I started writing that blog because my mom was worried about me and she was worried I wasn't eating, you know, and then she was there in Nebraska so I was like, okay, I, I have also never been a cook or enjoyed making food of any kind. So actually celiac disease made me start cooking. Um, there's a lot available now, but when I was diagnosed, there really wasn't. So that actually really 
was what made me start cooking and caring about food and probably what led to foraging and hunting and all of the things in my life that now I really drive a lot of satisfaction from. Um, That's a big accomplishment. Are you through that? I mean, you'll always struggle with it to right. some degree, but are you, yeah. are you, do you think you're through it? Yeah. It's not, but like you said, it never goes it's away. There. Yeah. No, it no. doesn't. And it's always, and like my first reaction to stress is to not eat. So it's not, I don't have a problem of, you know, I wish I had a comfort food. <laughs> because Which my, is also, it swings the other you know, way. Right. I had an eating disorder when I was younger. I never got full anorexia, but I got to the point where I was getting pretty dangerous. Yeah, no. And I swung the other way and binged and ended up putting weight on and messing the metabolism. So yeah. look, it is real and it, it affects so many different people, not just women, but people. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it's, it's more people are talking about it, but, and it is a weird thing because I think it stereotypically gets, you know, lumped into this. Oh, it's a young or vanity. young woman wanting to be thin. And it's Magazines really and not about that. No, it's control. It's control. Yeah. For sure. hundred percent. So I feel like I'm at a good place in my life and it's under control. Right. Um, but definitely, like you said too, uh, I'm 120 pounds now and I was 80 at the worst. Wow. You look great, by the way. I mean, right now you are, you're, pro- you're probably just right for your frame. Yeah. But even then, like you're slender. 80, right. Aaron, there would be nothing, there would be nothing there. I was, I was very skeletal. That's almost like you could, you could, you could perish it. Yeah. No, no and I had, there were serious, uh, I had hair falling out. I did very serious damage to my teeth. Yeah, there are definitely long-ranging effects or long-lasting effects from it. Um, and like you said, with the metabolism, I think it messed up not eating, messed up stomach acid issues. Yep. Um, so yeah. So when you met Jay, yeah, he had clicked on and seen your blog. Uh huh. And then what did he made some comment about tomatoes and basil? Now he wished summer could go on forever. Okay. <laughs> Jay, yes. Um, and then we just started, like, he started commenting, and I started commenting more on his blog. And he was writing more kind of almost fly fishing essay-ish type things rather than just instructions. So we are going back and commenting, and then, um, how did he do that? But we met for coffee as two writers. <laughs> and I was, I was very skeptical, and I would promised my mom that I wouldn't date or see any man for a year. Okay. Which... I broke. Okay. <laughs> Were you healthy at this point when you met him? Mm, I was, I would say I was healthy-ish. Okay. Um, you were on the I was, shortly after meeting him, I broke a hundred pounds, I remember. Okay. So I was definitely still very thin. Because Jay likes to cook. Yes, he does. And I think I kind of made him start cooking more. Okay. Um, yeah. So I remember the first meal he cooked me was actually venison. And he cooked me a meal at his place because... It was just difficult to go out. He's a very good cook. And um, a hunter. And a hunter. And he was in the fishing industry. And at this point, had you even held a fly rod yet? No. Okay. So then what happened? No, and then like it, getting my popcorn here. Yeah, and, he, <laughs> and I was just in awe because he had written a book. So, you know, oh, me course. being a bookish literary type was just like so impressed that he had written a book. And his first book was called In Neck Deep. And I bought it. And like read it and just thought this was the coolest thing ever. And that he was just so interesting. So I was just like, mom, I just need to go have coffee because he's so interesting. 
So we did. We had coffee and I got there first and I remember getting a newspaper and sitting in the back and like holding it. So if he was like super weird, I could <laughs> get out of the Starbucks. <laughs> oh, you better. I used to have friends on like hold. They would call as the friend excuse mm-hmm. and pretend there was an emergency. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to have a, an out. It's nice to have a backup plan. Yes. Because there are some crazies out there. Yes. But you like, you like, he wasn't a crazy. No. Yeah. And so we walked around and we drank our coffee and we talked. And then I think we had another little coffee date. And then, yeah, he made me venison that from a deer his mom had shot in Ohio. Yeah. And then just. How did did he say you want to go fly fishing someday? No, it didn't really start out like that. I mean, it was just mostly about riding for a long time. And eventually fly fishing came into it. So how did that happen? The first time we went fly fishing was for carp. Okay. So it was, it's not, I didn't get into the traditional way of getting into fly fishing. We went to these little. I wouldn't expect you to for some reason. Yeah, no, of course it couldn't be. <laughs> it, it was these little like gravel pits that had filled in with water and there were carp there. And we went there and it was like this little maze of just pockets of water You have to like get over them and go on to the little, it was just this whole like world. And I was instantly just like, this is fun. Like, this is almost like I remember being a kid being like when, because we had a creek running through our farm and we just like go down and make mud mud slides and just invent whole worlds. And I just loved it. Yeah. And I did catch carp. And your first try? Um, Yeah. First day. So after that, were you like, this is something I really want to do? Or did you decide that it was just going to be recreational? Or did you just not think anything about it at all? I definitely liked it and wanted to do it. But I don't know if I put thought into, I'm going to write about this or to that extent. Because I honestly didn't do a lot of writing when I was a kid, um, or even in college, through college at all. And it was the, the eating disorder and the blog that it was like that was kind of how I was processing things. And so I started writing seriously then. And so then it just, I think, will be that anything I'm going through in my life, I'll write about. So it wasn't, I'm going to write about fly fishing because of fly fishing, but because like I'm a writer and that's what I'm doing at that time. Coming up, Aaron and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Olakai for making this episode possible. Olakai handcrafts Hawaii-inspired footwear, finding inspiration in Hawaiian culture and craftsmanship. Fishing is at the heart of Hawaiian culture today, just as it has been for centuries. Generations of fishermen and women expertly cast from rocky shorelines and sandy beaches. They spearfish, throw nets, fly fish, and navigate their boats beyond the reef and into the deep blue in search of their next big catch. No matter how they do it, there's an attention to detail and respect for the ocean that guides their passion. At Olakai, they believe in the same attention to detail when crafting the highest quality shoes and sandals built for every type of marine environment. Olukai's water-friendly Noheha Moku slip-on shoe features razor siping with non-marking rubber for extra grip on the deck, the dock, or the rocks. And it's designed for easy on and off barefoot wear. When it comes to sandals that perform, Olukai's new Ulele provides comfort and durability for those long days on the boat or on the shore. I've been wearing my Ohana sandals and cannot believe how comfortable they are. They're super durable and they're also very stylish. Whether you're loading up the boat, shoreline fishing from the rocks, or scoping out the best place to set up on the beach, Olokai takes you further. Shop or find your local retailer at olokai.com forward slash anchored. 
How many books have you written now? I have written two books. And how many, I mean, to try to count how many times you've been published, do you know off the top of your head? I don't. It's a lot. I mean, it's double digits. No, it is. I looked you up. It's double digits. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. Because I know the pieces I've read of yours that I really enjoy, right? But I was, I also don't subscribe to a lot of these. Right. I, I don't know right. what's out there. But I did have a look and I went, whoa, actually, it is more than I thought. I knew about the two books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you wrote a book. That's how we met. That is how we met. That's how we met. You were writing a book on women in fly fishing, mm-hmm. which is ironic because mm-hmm. you were put on the map for me because of an article that you'd written about mm-hmm. women in fly fishing. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like they um, had very different tones, not tones. Mm-hmm. That would be like a writing style. I felt Approaches. like Approaches. Uh-huh. And yes. I'm, we'll talk about them. Okay. Um, but then what was the other one that you wrote? It was called A View, a view from Coal Creek. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Just, and I haven't, I actually haven't read it, but it got, it was highly appraised. Yes. It did get good, good feedback and good reviews. Um, and it was uh, about me, just me kind of chronicling building a fly rod. Yeah. A bamboo fly rod. Yeah. Now, the the article that put you on the map for me was the one that you did about being a woman in the mm-hmm. sport. And I wasn't actually going to bring this up, but because before we were rolling, I don't even know how long we spoke before I pressed record on this, but we, feminism kept coming up. Yeah. That article though, mm-hmm. you really approached the subject. Can you just explain to people this thing what your general, what your overall point was? Because you know, if I, I get got... it wrong, you can correct me because I haven't looked at it in many years. Go for it. To be fair, I probably haven't either. I just know I got absolutely smacked with it because people saw us as being so different. But at the same time, I agreed with so much of what you were saying. Yeah, which was unfair. To yeah, because I think we agree on yeah no the point. Oh, think, it's not even unfair. The, just like the point was like. Of that I didn't want to be treated differently as a woman angler. And I even hate those when someone, if someone refers to me as like, oh, it's a female fly fishing writer. Like, even a female what? writer, right? right? Oh, it's terrible. I'm going to start calling every male writer male writer. <laughs> John Garrick is one of the best male, male writers. writers. <laughs> Why did we not hear that with him? Right. And how many times do we hear people say great female writer. Right. I just don't see why it's relevant. But And it's not even a fly fishing world thing. It's the larger, if a woman writes a novel, it's chiclet. If a man writes a novel, it's the great American novel. Right. right? It's, there's, it's very systemic. It's, it's not just fly fishing, but I think the general gist was that I was just seeing this segment and women being treated differently, either disregarded or objectified. Yeah. Then a frustration with women seemingly being okay with that. It's accurate. I don't, I don't, dis- know. I don't I th- disagree I think with there you. were more points. <laughs> there know. were way more points. I think the only complaint I had was when, you know, when obviously people always, whether it's about me or not, people will always be like, oh, well, she must be referring to, it doesn't matter who it is. Kate right. Taylor does a does a, a quote in a magazine or, she, you know, and people automatically will always come back and be like, um, oh, she's comparing it to April, even though right. you, you might not be, right? But right. I think the only complaint I had about it was, you know, when uh, when some of the gals had said, um, oh, I relate more to Aaron than someone like April because Aaron's got messy hair and doesn't put any effort in. Right. And then I'm like, but wait a second. So, but if someone puts just as much effort into having messy hair, I, I, I just remember me being very confused why it was, why that was even a, a point or a comparison. Of like who was being more relatable. Yeah. That a, a fellow female angler would make in, I felt like it was just as hypocritical of them to be judging me by what I look like 
Um, right, and, and because like, they are like the fact that you're willing to relate to somebody more because of what they look like than the other. Doesn't that just put you in the in the same category, different box? You know. Yeah. But, but your premise, though. I did mm-hmm. not disagree with. So I'm just laying the line down there. I didn't necessarily like the conversation that happened after, but with your point, mm-hmm. I was on the same page. And I want to talk about it because I think it's a fantastic point to make. Mm-hmm. You really started for me and my friends the conversation of, okay, so we don't want to draw attention to the fact that we're a woman. We definitely get where she's coming from with mm-hmm. that. But where do we then draw the line of ignoring the patriarchy and ignoring the fact that we are being viewed differently or treated differently. Because your point, oh, that's right. Your point was, I am talented at this already. Right. I'm equal and I want to show you by by doing rather than by showing. Does that sound yes. right? <clears throat> yeah. I should have read this article before I No, I can't I remember exactly. But I remember where in the piece. I, yeah, you're right. That Yeah. I remember it being something along the lines of, I've got it. The fact that it is a sport that isn't gender specific means that we shouldn't have to draw attention to the fact that it's a woman doing it. And therefore, when we are saying, oh, look, even a woman can do it, or look at that this woman can do it, we are implying to society that we should be thankful and surprised that she could. And therefore, there's all we're already setting this underlying tone of feminism. That's what it was. Yes. If it comes, well it comes done. back, it's coming back to me now. <laughs> and, and I agreed with you. And then I remember being put in a real, you are such, you played such a pivotal role in my career. You don't know it, but you did. Um, Because I then read that article and agreed with so much of what you said, because you're right. Like it should just be expected that I'm just as good as the guys. Yeah. So when you guys are surprised that I'm a woman doing it, you're basically saying that the female, the woman as a whole can't usually do it. So April should be celebrated because look at the fact that she can do it. She, she must be something special. Yeah. Which is so very, yeah, very. And I, I came from, I think part of why it was just so like, so jarring and strange to me was I have never been an athletic person, right. <laughs> <laughs> never been into sports, but I did ride, you know, I was an equestrian. I rode 4-H showed and it was so equal. Yeah. There were no male, female classes. I mean, the, the horse was the equalizer, but your skill and ability to ride, train the horse was, you were all on the same level. Right. And that was kind of my only experience with that kind of thing. And then I was the only woman in the class, in the guitar department in college. And there were no special. It was songs, women play. Right. No, it was just so equal. So it was so weird to me. Jarring. It makes sense. But what it did for me and for some of my friends was we went, okay, she's totally right. So the media would contact me and I would say, I'm not going to discuss being a woman. Or they'd say, we want to quote for what it's like to be a woman in the sport. And Mm -hmm. I would politely decline. And I decided I was going to prove with just being, I mean, clearly I'm a woman. We don't Mm -hmm. need to discuss that I'm a woman or say I'm a female angler. It's pretty obvious that I am a woman. I'm going to just show that women can do it by just being a woman that does it. And then it, so it swung me on the total opposite side. (laughs) And now here I am in my thirties again, backpedaling, being like, oh, well, shit. So am I basically saying to people that we're going to ignore it? Where do we come back in the middle? And then when you wrote your, your book mm-hmm. about women and fly fishing, 
because I do look up to you, it was, okay, so she is bringing attention to this. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet in the middle here. I'm not going to ask for any special attention by being a woman, but I am not going to veer away from the conversation either by, by not bringing attention to the fact that women are prone to being treated differently in this world. Right. And I've thought a lot about this Okay, <laughs> um, because I felt that the, the second book came about um, actually before my first book the idea and it was kind of an agreed upon thing. And what was it? And it was Just... the publisher's idea that he, he had. And it was women in fly, in fly tying. Right. So influential women in fly tying. Um, and that's which, just full circle. That's how we met. Yes. You came in to interview me. Because I interviewed me. you. Yeah. Yes. Yep. You were very good and very patient. Thank you. <sighs> Thank you for agreeing to do it. <laughs> so I've thought about this because I felt very hypocritical. So I, I feel like there is a, a difference women have been historically overlooked. Their contributions to society at large, to science, to medicine, to sports, their stories have not been told, have not been celebrated, have not been included. You know, women, gender minorities, racial minorities. Right. So books that kind of bring that out, that highlight people who have not been included in in the history of, of whatever you're writing about, I feel like do need to be told. That does need to be written. That does need to be chronicled. So I felt that was kind of different than moving forward. We have a chance to not have women's issues of whatever magazine, or we have a chance to just include people, to include stories from different people, from different walks of life, from different genders, from different backgrounds, so that we, we don't have this missing experience. I didn't feel like it was hypocritical. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel that way. Because I felt like what you were doing is you were taking history mm-hmm. and saying, this is the history, everybody. Mm-hmm. And they've always been here. Women have always been here. And they've always been great. They've always been able to do it. So just get over this whole new age idea that, you know, women are the saving grace of of, right. of, of the sport. Because it was, I was telling Jay earlier before we were rolling about 15 years ago, there was this major push of getting women involved. And that was when they started really highlighting, you know, um, obviously it was all monetary. Everyone wanted mm-hmm. to get women in because they wanted to make more, more money in the industry. Customers. Yeah. Yeah. But that was when it was like, they were making everybody out to be, you know, really special. And it was like, she's a woman, she's a woman. They're just jamming it down our throats. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like highlighting and expose and bringing history back up where it's rightfully due mm-hmm. is the same thing as what you were trying to say in your article. I feel like they're different and I think you should sleep well at night knowing okay. that. <laughs> I, I always overthink things though. And I'm always worried about, about those things. So I have thought about it a lot. You were saying it earlier about the barriers for women in the sport to get involved in the sport. And I feel like that is what's missing. If we, if, if people really want to talk about women in fly fishing to really address this, 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 this systemic issues that are there that make it so there aren't so many women in fly fishing. Um, and a lot of those are cultural that aren't just fly fishing specific that I think are being talked about in the culture at large, but, but yeah, just kind of surface level fluff of more women need to get involved just feels like marketing. Because it is. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. And I'm a guilty, guilty, guilty part of that. Willing or not. Uh, part, partly willing and partly not. But yes, marketing, no, that's not, that is not you being paranoid. That, that, that's exactly what it has been. Yeah. And still is. And, still and is. like you were saying earlier about um, like a, a woman's experience in fly fishing is not different. The biggest difference 
I have experienced in either fly fishing or hunting is as a beginner is that men oftentimes have been doing these things for a lot longer. And it's not that my experience is different because I'm a woman. It's different because I'm a beginner and haven't been doing this for 30 years. So, so yeah, sometimes those, those questions are frustrating of like, how, how's this experience as a woman? And then I always think like, well, okay, we're going to talk about having a period like in that country, because that would be women specific. How deep do you want to go down this road? If we're not going to, it's not that much different. The experience is different because like I get this chafing with my underwear. How far different on which level? Maybe we should just start doing that and they'll stop asking the question. Maybe they actually knowing these guys will probably absolutely (laughs) love it. For you personally, Erin, was there anything in particular that happened to you that really put you off that you just thought, you know what? I'm just, I got to take a step back from this. Because you have taken a step back. I know you still edit and you're still involved Mm -hmm. um, behind the scenes in a lot of ways, but I definitely feel like I felt you take a step back. Am I right on that? Yeah. And I think in large part that has to do with not fishing as much. And it definitely, for the first couple of years, every day I had off, I was hiking to a high lake. I was fishing most of the time by myself just because I had... I, I really felt like kind of that article. I had to prove that I could do all of these things. So I was fishing a lot and just thinking about things a lot. Um, and Jay and I took a trip uh, to Alaska a few years ago, and it was a hundred mile river and canoe. We got dropped off by a float plane and we took dehydrated rice and some food, but then we just shot grouse. We ate the fish that we caught and it was it really altered how I looked at fishing. And oh, it yes. is what, what kind of made me want to get into hunting because it was just so, it was, I hate saying life-changing because I don't like cliche things, but it was life-changing. Yeah. Um, and opinion-changing. And opinion-changing, yeah, of just how satisfying it was. It feels weird now to catch and release fish. I still do. Mm-hmm. Because sustainably, you, you can't, especially in, in this area, there's so many anglers, there's, we have to catch and release fish. But it's not as satisfying as it once was. Yep. And so I don't do it as much as I once was. So I'm just not writing about it as much. Yeah, no. It, and I, and the more that I talk to other hunters, the more I find that this is a really common evolution with, yes. with outdoors people. I think it is. I also hate the word, word primal, but I think there is some sort of addiction to consequences. I think Erica, my sister, would use the term high risk. Explain. So if you're catching and releasing fish, and, and I've never been I've never been a really competitive person. So I never I mean you always you want to catch fish. But if you don't, there's no there's no consequence to that. There's no you're not going to go home and not have something to eat. And if I'm out hunting and I'm missed a shot at a grouse, which I usually do, (laughs) there's a very visible consequence and you just feel it in your gut of like food flying away that you are going to pluck and eat and then stew and get amazing broth out of. And there's just this huge consequence, which then also turns into this rush when you do get it right, which I never have felt with catching and releasing a fish. They're beautiful and gorgeous, and I still love fly fishing. 
but it's a, it's a, it's very real night and day difference. I mean, even in camp with Adelaide last year, you know, ice ice fishing like that. Yeah, it could have technically driven to the store. Actually, no, I really couldn't. There was the snow had moved in at that point, and town was way far away for me. But yeah. the lake is just up the logging road, and I just remember thinking, if I don't get these trout, I'm going to be stuck with dehydrated food again, which yeah. is fine. But I mean, it was like 60 days in a row at this point, And I really, we needed protein and I couldn't get a deer and it was hard because I had it on my back and gross season of clothes and I couldn't find any rabbits and I really needed those trout. Yeah. And, and you really start to like hunger, like really <laughs> needed those trout. You know, when you're out there, you're, like, your mouth's watering, you have plans and expectations for them because you really need them Yeah, in, to have protein for, for her and for me. And, um, and those fish that I caught on an ice fishing trip meant so much more to me than the steelhead. I had caught the same st- um, season and that was when things started changing for me. I started just kind of questioning the importance of catch and release even and the importance of like why I was so desperate to get those trout in from that frozen lake. And uh, yeah, it's just been a crazy, crazy evolution, but I do, I credit, I credit it all down to hunting. So it was the same yes, for you then. Same thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. And when we were in Alaska, we were we were catching plenty of fish, grayling and northern pike, and it was delicious and amazing. But when Jace shot this spruce grouse with a slingshot, that was the most amazing meal I have ever had. And it was like almost it was dark meat, and just there was just this crazy hunger drool like yeah. you're just like drooling as this was cooking like yeah. i need that meat just like i will tear anyone if they like try to get that meat. yeah like, just this very and the lack and just the lack of distraction in that moment when you're trying to get there that is actually the biggest thing because i am a very distracted person and i'm always multitasking my head i'm just always thinking of a zillion things and i've never felt ever felt in the moment of anything, except for when I'm hunting. You are just, I'm not, not thinking about anything else. Yeah, it's, it's meditative. Just, it, it is, it's very meditative. And it's human and it's what we're supposed to do. And it's why they were able to be, I mean, can you imagine having to survive off the land back then and knowing what could kill you and what couldn't, especially if you were living a nomadic lifestyle, which so many of them did. Yeah. You would have to be able to learn so much and you don't have time for distractions. And um, I mean, distractions, a whole, we could do a whole nother podcast on, on opinions of distraction, <laughs> but yeah, it, it really does. It forces you just to focus. Mm-hmm. But in that time then with how rewarded you feel after and how grounded you feel when you're done, you're like, when you're sitting there, like you said, at night eating, feeling so whole, it makes you, you can't, we, we are human. We compare experiences mm-hmm. within ourselves. It makes you look at when, for me personally, I, then I would catch a steelhead, a great steelhead, whatever, mm-hmm. and let it go and be like, oh, that was cool. Right. But then I'd go out and I'd like you catch, you know, shoot a grouse and feel so, especially when I had lack of protein. I mean, I remember one year I was pregnant with Adelaide and I couldn't get a grouse. I was so hungry. And there was one in my backyard. I say backyard loose, like in the forest. Yeah. <laughs> like I went in the forest and shot and got this grouse and I felt, oh, I can't even explain it. Not only, I was proud of myself, obviously, but I felt so human. Yeah. And then I would compare it to how I felt about the steelhead I just caught. And it was like, well, you know, why does that feel so empty? It's and so different. Obviously I want to feel full. So I would go out of my way to find experiences that made me feel full. And I just have found within my own personal evolution that they tend to be veering more and more away from 
from catch and release fishing. Yeah. Or like even we go, Charles and I fish and he wants to catch a steelhead and I want to catch a salmon. Right. He's like, what's wrong with you? But you, you know, well, you can't take a picture of a salmon, but I'm not there for that. Right. I want to cook it over the fire. And, but again, you know, I get, I get labeled as, oh, well, she's domesticated now. She's a mother. She's cooking. <laughs> <laughs> she's nesting. But you get it, right? Yeah. And you are not nesting. I am anybody. not nesting. <laughs> I do not have a child. So... You get it. Everyone leave April alone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> leave me alone. No, but uh, yeah, so you uh, you get it. But it's the sort of thing that you can't really, you have to just get there on your own yeah. terms. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Erin, you're so understated. And I mean, that's obviously one of the reasons why we all love you so much. It's That's why I wear brown. I don't like calling attention to myself. <laughs> Selfishly, I want you out there because I want people to learn from you, there was even a time where I was so naive that I would try to convince you right now to get out there because I'd be like, "You'd be a great role model." But you know what? That I I don't know. My faith in this role model thing is slowly diminishing. <laughs> It'll come back. I'm sure. I'm just. It's the end of IFT. Maybe so we have grim views of the future. We'll get it back, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm not expecting to. <laughs> you have high hopes. I've accepted. Have hopes. I have accepted my my pessimism. So do you ever, do you try to make a difference? Like, is there something that you would like to do to make a difference? Or have you just finally said, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be a hermit. And like in the larger world. Yeah. 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 Way beyond fly fishing. I think I think about my actions a lot. Um, I mean, hunting is one of those actions. Industrial agriculture is very, has a lot of environmental consequences. Um, it's definitely been a, a thought when deciding whether or not to have children, even though I've never thought about it. It plays into that, my thought process on that. So, so yeah, I, I try to make my personal decisions, even if I do have a pessimistic view that it's not going to make a big difference. I try to make it so I can sleep well, that I don't feel like I'm being hypocritical there's always going to be some level of hypocrisy sure. in everyone's life, right? I drive to work. Yeah. I mean, you know, but... But as a writer, though, mm-hmm. I mean, that is a voice that is, especially nowadays, so unique. Mm-hmm. And as a writer who does such a fantastic job eloquently explaining how she feels, is that something that you've ever tossed around? You can write the next Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. No, I don't think I can. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that I think is why I have been interested in fiction is you can be a lot more honest in fiction because sometimes the things that you want to pull from real life just don't don't happen how they should or how it would be most engaging. So you can really make fiction very true. And I think I've been trying to write short stories because I feel like they are just these gut punches of amazingness. And Distilled is just the most like true human experience is a good short story. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. So you are like still going to gut punch though. Hopefully. Good. I don't know, but it's, it's a whole different realm. And it's a whole different thing. Um, but I was thinking about there's in Thomas McGuane's newest book, Cloudburst, there's this short story called flight. It's, it's two guys out bird hunting and, you know, they're talking and, a successful day and slowly though the older guy starts giving the younger guy like instructions on what to feed his dogs and you're kind of just reading reading and then by the end of the short story you're realizing he's going over a hill to shoot himself and to end his life and it's just like you couldn't write an essay like that 
But in a short story, it's just this distilled humanness that's just really addicting and just powerful. And I would love to write good short stories. It takes a, so, a lot of thought to process. It's a good essays. thing you're only 35 years old, my friend. <laughs> you got a long career ahead of you. Well, listen, I'll wrap it up. We've got hair. What are we having for dinner, Jay? Jack rabbits do thank you, Aaron. I'm you're looking welcome. forward to this. Um, but yeah, no, I just think that that uh, fellow, that younger um, anglers, men and women, obviously, <laughs> I even have to say that, do just need to realize that there are people that are really inspirational beyond just their social media following or you know the accolades that they get from their peers. You can be living in the middle of a really cute nineteen some odd <laughs> cabin barefoot. Yeah, that's you know, right. Always her, inner brown and making a difference. <laughs> so I know I'm making you uncomfortable because you hate compliments, but thank you. And please don't go anywhere. Thank you very much. Let's eat. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.